Good morning. If you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, the New Testament companion reading is taken from Revelation chapter 5, and we'll read verses 1 through 14. Revelation 5, verses 1 through 14. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. If you would turn in your Bibles to Psalm 98, this is our text uh, for, the, for the morning, and I'll read the full psalm, um, and then I'll pray. Psalm 98, a psalm. O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. 
He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful to be before your face even now. We thank you that you have called us out of this world, that you have brought us into your kingdom. Lord, that you have cleansed us from every one of our sins, that we stand righteous before your throne of grace. Lord, so we boldly ask you that you would help us during this time. Speak your words to us. Lord, may we be captivated by a vision of you. Lord, and may that result in joyful singing before your throne. In Jesus' name, amen. This, this psalm has two uh, simple parts to it, and the first part is in the very first word of the psalm, and it's the word sing. Sing to the Lord a new song. And the second part gives us the reason for singing. Why should we be singing to the Lord? For the Lord has done wondrous things. As we go through the sermon, we'll um, switch back and forth between those two elements, but that's the broad outline uh, of Psalm 98. So verse 1, you get sing. It's a, com it's a command. In the imperative, it's a plural imperative, and it assumes an assembly. It's not being spoken to an individual. It's being spoken to a congregation. And I always find it helpful when there's a clear uh, to-do in any text of Scripture uh, that you come across. And here we have a very clear to-do. We're to sing. In verse 4, if you look, it, it picks up on this, uh, on this command. You get, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Another command, make a joyful noise. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Through the rest of the psalm, you actually get this first command that is followed um, by nine other commands. And they're all the same. Shout out, break forth, make a ringing cry, make music, make music again, shout out again, thunder, clap, shout for joy. This psalm summons God's creation to an ecstatic explosion of joy before the king. We're to sing robustly and we're to sing joyfully. It's a good, it's a good command if we stop to think about it for a second. The command is not burdensome, it assumes joy and it assumes that there's something to be happy about. 
So can you imagine if all of the Psalms and all of Scripture, and some of Scripture does certainly have this, was just command after command of weep and mourn and be sorrowful. This your whole life through, the whole way through. But that's not what it is. It's sing, make a joyful noise to the Lord. Now there are certainly hurdles to making a joyful noise to the Lord. I don't know if anyone else felt the hurdle as we were singing joy to the world. So I was about to preach this sermon and I felt the hurdle because I wanted as much as joy to the world, the Lord is come. That is so much easier. At each one of the beginning of, of those four verses, it expects a burst. I don't know if you felt that. The energy. It's like you need to really get up to sing that. You can't be in a low state to sing that song. It's, I won't do it, I just did it four times. It is burst out, joy to the world. And you sing it from in here. You have to really dig in to get it. Um, It's hard to do. Uh, We're often tired and we're really not in that place. That's what, one of the hurdles is just, that we don't really want to get there. So what do we do when we don't want to get there? You jump in. That's what we do. You jump in. The song has a way of elevating you or wrapping you up in its rapture. That's something that singing does. So I have um, three young daughters at home and we love to have, we love to have dance parties in our living room. We turn on the music and the girls just dance and dance. And my son, who's 10 months, he even is getting into it. And he's just. And we're, everyone is dancing. And I love joining the dance parties when I love joining the dance parties. I don't always love joining the dance parties. But I'll, sit, I'll be sitting on the couch and one of my daughters will inevitably come up to me. Dad, let's dance. Let's dance. So when I want to dance, I jump up and we dance and close the blinds and (laughs) open the blinds sometimes if we're feeling really free and bold. If I don't want to dance, I dance. And then I want to dance. If you don't want to sing joyfully, sing joyfully. And the song will wrap you up in the singing and you'll do it joyfully. That's one of the hurdles that you face. And I think the best way is just to say, just, just get in and sing and the song will wrap you into it. Another hurdle that, um, that we often feel, I think, is that we're afraid of what other people are going to think about us. Like, oh, they can hear me. I don't sing perfectly. Uh, who's, who's listening to me? Who's judging me? Um, I'll just I'll just kind of blend in with the crowd and certainly a blending is is good in a congregation But it's you shouldn't be barred from singing joyfully Because you care so much about what the person behind you thinks or what the person next to you thinks So I think this comes out really explicitly um, In five of the verses um, in this in this psalm. So how do we combat the fear of others? Well, it's, it's simple. You're not singing for them. We're not singing for the person next to us or behind us who's judging us. We are singing in a sense, 
with and for one another as we all get caught up in the experience. But it isn't for that person. It's very explicitly five times, verse 1, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, verse 9. It is singing for the Lord. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Sing before the face of the Lord, before the face of the King. And if you can transport yourself to that place, which, you, which we're called to do, then you belt out. You say, well, God is telling me to sing before him joyfully. I don't care. Frankly, I don't care what this person next to me is thinking. I'm going to belt out joyfully. And we can talk about better singing later. And so we can all belt out joyfully before the Lord. God wants us to sing and he wants us to sing um, with all of our hearts before the Lord. Another way to combat this um, fear and really both struggles or any hurdle, and this is what the psalm says to us, is it says why we're supposed to sing. So it doesn't just leave it as a hollow command, sing. It says sing for the Lord has done wonderful things. So that's the fuel to the fire. If you really believe that God has done wonderful things, and if you really see that God has done wonderful things, it's just this natural overflow of being caught up in the vision of God, like we just read in Revelation. Nobody is beholding God and keeping quiet. You're seeing God, you're understanding what God has done, and it's just fireworks, just shooting. You can't contain it at all. There was a providential um, example or illustration of this uh, that I, I picked up my phone. I'm uh, into the baseball playoffs and more specifically the Philadelphia Phillies. We live out in Maryland. Um, not a big Baltimore Orioles fan, but Bryce Harper is on the Philadelphia Phillies. And so I've been tracking the Phillies and picked up to read kind of how the game went beforehand. And one of the players had a really great game and he had made a couple of outstanding plays. And he, he said this, so following his second stellar defensive play, Segura, Gene Segura, who's their second baseman, flexed his arms before sending a punch to the sky. And then here's what he said about it, about um, his explosion of joy. He said, I'm fired up. I don't know how to explain that, but it's like fire inside my body. I just want to get it out, like explosive. Ah! That's not a great, he, I'm, he was in the moment and he did a lot better than I did. If you don't get emotional with 45,000 people in the stands, you're playing the wrong sport. So the play fueled the crowd, caused the crowd to erupt. The, the crowd's eruption, when he saw the crowd erupt, it caused him to erupt. And it, it was just this explosion. He gets it out, pumps his fist, and he screams out, he yells out. And that's... That's what it's like, except we're, we're seeing something much better than a diving play at second base or something much better than a, an explosion of 45,000 people in, in the stands. When we catch a vision of God's works, it's like fire inside. And the song is the natural and almost involuntary overflow of catching that sight. So the second part then, um, is, and what we want to kind of get into is uh, the, the fuel and 
What is it that this psalm provides in terms of fuel for the song of creation? So in verse 1b, it says, He accomplished salvation, and specifically, it says, His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. So the right hand, um, generally speaking, is God's hand of power. So Exodus 15 verse 6 says, Your right hand, Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, Lord, shatters the enemy. Psalm 89 verse 13 says, You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand. Exalted is your right hand. Augustine comments on Psalm 98 and he asks the question, who is the right hand of God? And then he answers, our Lord Jesus Christ is the right hand of God. And it isn't always immediately apparent to me um, when I'm reading uh, Augustine or certainly any commentator that what they're saying or what they've seen or come to is fully grounded in the text. So is it right to say that Jesus Christ is the right hand of God? Is that kind of the picture we get um, in Scripture? And in this case, I think, he, I think it is right to say that, to say that Jesus Christ is the right hand of God. God's hand extended out in power to work salvation for the people. Even when you sketch it in, those, in that broad outline, you say, well, of course, that's Jesus Christ. Of course it is. We heard it um, in the Exodus reading or the Deuteronomy reading this morning. When God brought his people out of Egypt, he brought them out with a strong hand and a mighty arm. Of course, we know the event that led to the Exodus was the, um, the Passover and the son being uh, sacrificed and the lamb being sacrificed over the doorposts. Um, but I think the Psalter and the rest of Scripture bears this out. So Psalm 80 verse 17 says, Let your hand be on the man of your right hand. The son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Isaiah 50 verse 2 asks the question, Why when I came was there no man? This is the Lord speaking. Why when I called was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Have I no power to deliver? Isaiah 59 answers the question. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you. Righteousness stands far away. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. Isaiah pictures the Lord 
as a warrior in heaven looking down and say, who is going to deliver my people? And he's astounded that nobody can do it because nobody is righteous. And he says, well, my hand isn't too short. I'm going to stretch it out. I'm going to put on righteousness as a breastplate and I'm going to rend the heavens and I'm going to come down and I'm going to fight. You all can't fight. I'm going to fight. And he fights and he wins. His coming in the person of Christ is the extension of his right hand and his, and I think it's certainly um, emphatic here, his holy arm. The holiness has both an ethical realm to it, but also a set apartness to it. So let's compare arms. God's arm and our arm. And there is no comparison. Only because of his holy right arm could we be saved. There's an emphasis both in the Psalms and in Isaiah, and it's this um, kind of merging or fusing together of righteousness and of power. So it's the righteousness of God that is revealed before the nations. And it's the power of God that's on display in his working of salvation. So if you think about it for a moment, it's an idea that has um, captivated me lately. And it's, it's this idea of strength in righteousness. That it was Christ's unflinching righteousness that led him to the cross. So if Christ had been wicked, he, he wouldn't have been hated, and he would have never gone to the cross. It's because he was obedient, and it's because he was righteous, that the religious leaders hated him, that they handed him over, that people mocked him and spit on him because he, he called himself the king, which he truly was. If he had just cowered and said, no, I'm not those things, no, I'm not going to be righteous. Nobody would have cared. They opposed him because he was righteous. So we often don't want to be righteous. Um, we don't want to be righteous because we're sinful and we want, we'd rather do sinful things. That didn't plague Christ. But oftentimes we don't want to be righteous because we're too weak and we're too cowardly to be righteous. We care too much about the effects that our righteous words or righteous actions are going to bring upon us. What's going what's to be the fallout of this righteous word? What's going to be the fallout of this righteous action? I don't want to face these people. Christ didn't care about that. He was too strong for that. He said, I care about one thing. I care about doing the will of my Father in heaven. Whatever may come, I'll take it on. Isaiah 50 verse 5 says, I was not rebellious. I did not turn backward. I gave my back to those who strike. I did not hide my face from disgrace and spitting. The Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. Just think of his struggles, and we're well acquainted with the struggles, but think of those most intense moments of struggles for Christ and the way that he faced them in the full strength of righteousness. 
So when he's in Gethsemane and he's praying to the Lord and he has this, this conflict where I don't want to die. I don't want to face your wrath. He's sweating drops of blood. He's in deep agony. And what does he do? In strength, in calm composure, Abba, Father, not my will, but your will. Think of the strength in those words. He faces the situation head on. He knew exactly what was coming his way. And he set his face like flint and said, fine, I'm going to do the will of God. I don't care what comes. I know what's coming and I'm going to face it. Think of him when he's on the cross, the intensity of the cross. I think in that moment in the garden, it, I think it was this very, this very peaceful and intimate time of talking with God and praying to him. The struggle on the cross, the intensity be, becomes so great for him that he can't help but cry out to God. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's in intense physical pain. You hear the struggle coming from his voice. People are at the foot of the cross, not encouraging him on. Stay up there. We need you to save us. Stay on the cross. They're taunting him and they're mocking him. Come down. Save yourself. You could save everyone else. Why can't you save yourself? In a moment of rage, he would have come down and destroyed everybody. In calm, resolute obedience, he kept his mouth quiet and he said, You don't know what you're saying. You have no idea what I'm doing. I didn't come into this world to be served. I came into this world to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Think of the strength in that moment that it took him to stay there. The taunts come and he stays in this firm resolve to do the work of God. Nobody else could do it. Nobody was fit to do it. It was his right hand. It was his holy arm. Who is like him? Nobody. Nobody is like him. The Lord has done wondrous things for us. In his faithfulness and in his steadfast love, the psalm tells us, he remembered his promises to the house of Israel and he faced hell on earth for our salvation so that we would then proclaim his wondrous works in joy and in steadfastness. So the, the, the accomplishment happened at the cross. And this psalm gives a lot of weight to both the accomplishment, but then it talks about the revelation of that accomplishment. So that there's joy because he didn't just accomplish it and then sit in heaven as the king who's going to rule and reign alone, but he brings a host with him and his salvation is published 
in the eyes of the nations is what the psalm says so that they see it and they know it and we see it and we know it and from shore to shore the gospel goes forth and calls sinners to repentance the psalm assumes repentance it assumes repentance it assumes faith and if you don't know christ then you can't enter into the psalm because you have no reason to be joyful about the prospect of the judge returning to the world. We can be joyful when the judge returns because we've already been judged. We were judged at the cross of Calvary. If you don't believe in Christ and you aren't joined to Christ, this psalm, this psalm does not say sing to you. This psalm says tremble. Be afraid, repent, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, and you will join creation's song. The psalm starts with sing, and it's addressing all of us. As it continues, and um, we mentioned those four imperatives um, in verse 4, um, it, it picks up on the very last imperative in verse 4 and expounds on it. So it's make a joyful noise and burst out with singing. And then it picks up on the, um, the make music, which is the last one, and it appears twice in the psalm. Make music to the Lord. And in verses 5 and 6, if you'll look, um, he uh, explains or talks more about the making of music. He says, sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the king, the Lord. So you get two instruments. The first instrument is the lyre. The lyre is a small harp-like instrument. It is beautiful um, and it's not dainty because dainty is a negative word. If dainty is a positive word for you, then dainty, it's also dainty. But it's in terms of Christ, it is meek and mild. The, the harp is meek and mild and beautiful. And the king delights in meekness and in mildness. It's an unassuming instrument that will kind of relax you and put you to sleep. Now contrast that with verse 6. Blow the horn and belt out the trumpets. There is nothing unassuming about trumpets. Trumpets are loud and trumpets are bold. And that's what they're, that's what's being blown. At the coming of the king, both instruments are fitting. So it exalts the humility of God, of Christ, and it exalts the strength of God and of Christ. But the praise escalates after verse 6 in verses um, 7 and 8. So the trumpets, it's as if the trumpets aren't enough to celebrate before the king and to praise the king. So it brings in, let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands let the hills or the mountains sing for joy together. The praise climaxes and brings in the rest of creation. So it's a strange thing to make inanimate creation animate or to personify um, inanimate creation such that it joins the praise of everyone else. 
But the principle is um, really straightforward. And the idea is that God is king of the world and everything underneath his righteous reign is impacted by that. So the opposite is also true. If the world, and this world it certainly is the case, if this world has wicked rulers ruling over it, then the creation is going to languish and it's going to suffer. And Paul does this in Romans 8, where he personifies creation that it's groaning for the return of the king, for the revelation of the sons of God so that they will take and resume their rightful position as rulers and that creation can flourish as it always was meant to do. So Hosea 4 gets at the same reality. It says, um, and it picks up on the reverse side of things. Uh, it talks about the, um, the wickedness or the ramifications of wicked rule. It says, there is no faithfulness. This is Hosea 4. There is no faithfulness. There is no steadfast love. There is no knowledge of God on earth. There is swearing and lying and murder and stealing and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the earth mourns and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. So on the one hand, you have wicked, wickedness leading to languishing. In this psalm, you have righteousness, the righteous God ruling over creation, returning and restoring the perfect world order. This kind of caps, this kind of caps the fuel for our praise. So the psalm both looks back to what Christ accomplished in his salvation, but it also looks forward. It sets our eyes forward to the day when Christ is going to return and he's going to judge the world with righteousness. And he's going to judge the peoples with equity. And he's going to restore what scripture tells us is a new heavens and a new earth in which only righteousness dwells. And there won't be any more cause for mourning. We won't hear the commands mourn and weep and wail. The only thing that we'll hear ever is rejoice and be glad. Sing again. Burst forth into singing. The king has returned. And the king has set everything perfect in the way that it was supposed to be. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for our unbelief. Forgive us for our slowness to sing before you. Forgive us that we fear other people more than we fear you. Lord, we ask and need you to regularly set your wondrous works before our eyes. We pray that they would fill up our hearts, Lord, and that our mouths would express this fire that is burning within us because we've been captivated with what you came into this world to do. We thank you, Son of God, that you left the glory of heaven to die for sinners such as us. 
We pray that you would make us more like yourself. We ask these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.